You're listening to Bible Truth Feed, a podcast by Christadelphianvideo.org for Christadelphians and all those seeking the truth about the Bible message. Join us now as we present our latest episode. Theistic evolution, the dangers of such a theory. Hello and welcome to Bible Truth Feed, a podcast by ChristadelphianVideo.org. Now, theistic evolution is a man-made theory that completely destroys the Bible's corroborated gospel declaration of salvation, that God's plan will ultimately manifest his righteousness. God by his divine timetable, will send his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, back to the earth, infinitely and divinely empowered to destroy all corruption and evil, both human and natural. Those faithful to the gospel will be transformed to everlasting beauty according to God's infinite righteousness. Um, to be honest with you, I think it's a, a rather sad reflection of the current state of things in the Brotherhood at the moment that we're having to devote an evening at Bible school to this particular subject. I'm sure that most of us, if not all of us, um, are aware that in recent years the issue of theistic evolution has surfaced in parts of the Brotherhood And it is gaining ground, brethren and sisters, particularly amongst our young people. And sadly, it has already led to some of our brethren and sisters losing their faith altogether and leaving the truth. And should the Lord remain away, it's likely that there will be more casualties to come. So make no mistake, it is a serious issue that we face. And I believe it's the responsibility of all of us Um, to confront this issue and to challenge it head on. And it's not easy, but it's something that we need to try to our best to to do in our uh, daily lives and in our ecclesias. So at the outset, we need to understand in, in basic terms what we mean by theistic evolution. And it's sometimes, it's called other things, it's sometimes called evolutionary creationism, And it is a viewpoint that tries to reconcile the early chapters of Genesis, Genesis 1 and 2, with the modern theory of evolution. And supporters of theistic evolution accept without reservation that uh, scientific discovery has proven beyond all doubt that evolution is true. But they believe that whilst evolution is true, it was set in motion by God. Evolution occurred as biologists describe it, but it was under the direction of God. This is what they believe. So they try to reconcile evolution with the Bible. And they do this by uh, trying to demonstrate that Genesis chapters 1 and 2 is not literal It's not a literal historical account of how God 
created heaven and earth and all forms of life. And so they reject the, the simple teaching of the scripture that God made heaven and earth in six days. Now, we ought to bear in mind that, having said that, theistic evolutionists don't all believe the same thing. So, for example, some of them will say that Adam was, was not a real person at all. He was just a, a metaphorical figure, a myth, even. Some say that he was a real person and that he was the first of a, a race of evolved human beings that came into existence by evolution to whom God chose to reveal himself. In effect, and it's an awful phrase, but he was the first person with whom God chose to do business. This is what they say. But others say that Adam was, in fact, a separate special creation of God, but that there was also, at the same time, a race of human beings that came into existence through the process of evolution, quite distinct from Adam, with whom Adam's offspring then intermingled and intermarried. So there are different shades of opinion amongst the theistic evolutionists. And as far as Genesis chapters 1 and 2 are concerned, again, there are different points of view. Some of them will say that Genesis chapters 1 and 2 have no bearing on actual historical events at all. They're just teaching stories based on the beliefs of the ancient Near Eastern civilizations. And, and you know, the theistic evolutionists will go out of their way to try to prove that Genesis chapters 1 and 2 contradict each other. So they, they're not teaching the same thing. They're contradictory accounts of the creation. And others will actually adopt the even more extreme view that nothing in the first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis should be considered as historical fact. But, you know, in spite of all these different shades of opinion that the theistic evolutionists have, all of them agree on one thing. And that is that as far as the creation record is concerned that we have in the book of Genesis, that the Bible does not mean what it says. So when it says that in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that in them is, and rested the seventh day, well, that's just not true. And, you know, various arguments have been put forward by them to try to discredit Genesis 1 and 2 as a literal historical fact and to explain away the apparently simple teaching of the scriptures. And, you know, here, brethren and sisters, is really the, the nub of the issue because as Christadelphians, we believe... As the Apostle Paul said to Timothy, that all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. This is the fundamental fact that we believe, that the scriptures are inspired. And so we have to reject the teaching of the evolutionists and their approach 
to the Bible. And for that reason alone, we believe that theistic evolution is capable of undermining the truth and is doing and is making shipwreck of faith. And it's a serious challenge to the doctrine of the inspiration of Scripture. And as we said at the beginning, it's already led to some of our brethren and sisters losing their faith altogether and leaving the truth. But the question is, at the end of the day, why is it so important? Why is it so important that we believe what the Bible says about the creation of heaven and earth in six days? Does it actually make any fundamental difference to the foundations of our faith, if we believe that Adam was the first man or not? And, you know, that they often say that it's Jesus Christ who's important, not Adam. And, you know, my answer to that is that it most definitely does matter, and this is what we're going to be thinking about for a while together this evening. So what I want us to do with our time together is just three things. First of all, I want us to highlight just some of our fundamental core first principle beliefs, our doctrines, and show that they are just not compatible with theistic evolution. And then I want us to have a look at Genesis chapter 1, and in particular, we're going to focus on the creation of the firmament on the second day. Because you see, it's often argued that the description of the firmament in Genesis chapter 1, verses 6 through to 8, proves that Genesis 1 cannot be understood literally. So we shall have a look at that and demonstrate that that claim is just not true. And then we're going to take a brief look about at what the Bible tells us about demons, which is why we had that reading from Mark chapter 5. Because again, you see, the theistic evolutionists use the fact that the Bible talks about demons to try to prove that we cannot take the Bible at face value. Now, it, it's a big subject, and we're really, we're only going to be able to scratch the surface tonight. We're not going to be able to deal with it in any great detail. So I'd just like to show you one or two resources that you might find helpful. And this is the first one. It's a book called By One Man by Brethren Colin Burns and Matthew Jamieson. It's available in the bookshop. This is an excellent, detailed book, and it's well worth having a look at. Genesis chapter 1 and 2, a harmonized and historical reading by Brother Peter Heaviside. Again, really well worth getting hold of because this demonstrates that contrary to what the theistic evolutionists say, Genesis chapters 1 and 2 are not in fact contradictory at all, but they are in wonderful harmony with each other. And unfortunately, we're not going to be able to look at that subject this evening. And then if you're really desperate, then you can look at this book too that Brother Matt and I wrote a few years ago to try and counter some of the arguments that were being aired um, in online Christadelphian forums. So there's some things for you to just have a look at in your own times. Now what I want to do first then is just to put on the screen some of the relevant clauses from our Statement of Faith, the Birmingham Amended Statement of Faith, and I'm going to just contrast these 
with what theistic evolution says. And we're not going to say an awful lot about it, we're just going to show the different viewpoints. And hopefully you'll be able to see straight away that the two things just cannot be reconciled. And at this point we need to just say a word about the statement of faith, because you see sometimes when you bring up the subject of the statement of faith, you get criticised. Now, what we're not saying is that the Birmingham amended statement of faith is infallible or inspired or anything like that. Of course not. It's a human, man-made document. But it's just a very useful, a very simple summary of the core doctrines that we all believe that we subscribed to when we were baptized, and it's our common belief in these fundamental doctrines that binds us together in fellowship. So this is the foundation clause from the Birmingham Mender Statement of Faith about the scriptures. It says that the scriptures were wholly given by inspiration of God in the writers and are consequently without error in all parts of them. Now, of course, according to theistic evolution, that is just not true because the Bible says that God made heaven and earth in six days. Theistic evolution says, well, no, he didn't. Clause number one says that God hath, out of his own underived energy, created heaven and earth and all that in them is. And again, that statement leaves no room for misunderstanding or accommodation of evolutionary ideas. Heaven and earth and all life were created by God. Clause 3, that the appearance of Jesus of Nazareth on the earth was necessitated by the position and state into which the human race had been brought by the circumstances connected with the first man. So this is telling us that the Lord Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, and to do so, he had to be both son of God and son of man. And it refers to Adam as the first man. And of course, if Adam was an evolved human being, then that's not true. He wasn't the first man at all. He was just one in a, a long line of evolved human beings. And in fact, the creation of Adam is also mentioned in Clause 4, where it says specifically that the first man was Adam, whom God created out of the dust of the ground as a living soul. So again, Adam was created. He did not evolve. Clause 5 says that Adam broke God's law and was adjudged unworthy of immortality and sentenced to return to the ground from whence he was taken, a sentence which defiled and became a physical law of his being and was transmitted to all his posterity. And so this clause is talking about the entrance of death into the world as a result of the sin of Adam, the first man. And, of course, this is what it says in Romans 5, verse 12, isn't it? That by one man sin entered into the world and death by sin. Now, just think about that for a moment. Just think about that. Because if Adam evolved, 
then clearly he was mortal all along. He had to be. So if that's true, then death did not come into the world because of sin, according to theistic evolution. So you see, Romans chapter 5 and verse 12 causes all sorts of problems for the theistic evolutionists, and they, they end up having to make rather convoluted, complicated arguments about what death means. Death doesn't really mean death. So, you know, to a simple person, that's just nonsense. But this is what they say, that death, well, it's not really death at all. Now, the law of sin and death is also referred to in Clause 6, where it says that God, in his kindness, conceived a plan of restoration, which, without setting aside, is just a necessary law of sin and death should ultimately rescue the race from destruction and people the earth with sinless immortals. And again, the same point applies, that theistic evolution contradicts the law of sin and death, because if human beings evolved, then they, were, they must have been mortal all along. Clause 10. This is about Jesus, and he's described as a a sufferer in the days of his flesh from all the effects that came by Adam's transgression, including death that passed upon all men, which he shared by partaking of their physical nature. And so again, this emphasizes the point that all men die as a direct consequence of Adam's transgression because all men are directly descended from him. And that included the Lord Jesus Christ, of course. But again, according to theistic evolution, well, the human race evolved, and therefore death existed right from the beginning. Clause 12. This clause elaborates on the doctrine of the atonement, and Jesus is described in this clause as a propitiation to declare the righteousness of God as a basis for the remission of sins. All who approach God through this crucified but risen representative of Adam's disobedient race are forgiven. Therefore, by a figure, his blood cleanseth from sin. So Jesus is a representative. And, of course, we understand that the representative nature of Jesus' atoning work requires that all men and women are related to him through Adam, the universal common ancestor. But again, according to theistic evolution, well, that's not the case because man existed before Adam. And so, in fact, there were men and women alive at the time of Adam who had no connection with Adam whatsoever. And so how then could the Lord Jesus Christ, be their representative and, and die for their sins. It doesn't make sense. And we could say a lot more, but hopefully, just from that brief resume, you can see that when it all boils down to it, theistic evolution is just not compatible with some of our fundamental core beliefs. And in particular, in particular, it undermines the doctrine of the inspiration of scripture in fact in our statement of faith doctrine to be rejected 
number one says this, that the Bible is only partly the work of inspiration, or if wholly so, contains errors which inspiration has allowed. So that's a doctrine to be rejected in our statement of faith. And yet this is precisely what theistic evolution says. And so because of its, uh, in my view, serious doctrinal implications, we should have no hesitation in rejecting the notion of theistic evolution. Well, what I want us to do now is to open our Bibles at Genesis chapter 1. And in particular, we're going to have a look now specifically at the creation of the firmament on the second day that's recorded for us in Genesis chapter 1, verses 6 through to 8. Because you see that the theistic evolutionists argue that Genesis 1 and 2 is not a literal historical account at all of how God created heaven and earth. They say that we don't have to take it literally. It was never intended to be so. And they then say that because Genesis 1 and 2 is not literal, then we are at liberty to shoehorn evolution into the narrative. And a significant foundation stone for this non-literal understanding of Genesis 1 is the claim that, in fact, the firmament that's described in verses 6 through to 8 is portrayed by the writer as being solid. So the reasoning goes something like this. So the ancient Near Eastern civilizations of the day, they believed that the earth was flat, that it was supported on pillars, and that the firmament was this solid dome in which the sun, the moon, and the stars were were set, and the waters below this firmament represented the seas, and above this solid dome was what they call the ocean of heaven, which is why when we read later on how that God sent the flood, it talks about the windows of heaven being opened, allowing the waters above the firmament to to flood the flat earth below. This is what they say Genesis 1 is saying. And it's then further reasoned that the writer of the book of Genesis actually assumed that this ancient Near Eastern understanding of the cosmos was correct. In fact, he believed it himself. He had to because his his own worldview was constrained by his primitive understanding of how things worked. And then it's argued that since we now know in our enlightenment from science that the heavens are not solid, well, we can then draw the conclusion that Genesis chapter 1 doesn't actually align itself with modern scientific fact. And and this then gives us the liberty to assume that Genesis 1 and 2 were never intended to be understood literally. It's It's just a story. So let's just read it together. Verse 6 says that God said, Let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters, and let it divide the waters from the waters. And God made the firmament and divided the waters which were under the firmament from the waters which were above the firmament, and it was so. And God called the firmament heaven, and the evening and the morning 
were the second day. So there's all sorts of pictures like this that you can find on the internet. This is what they think is being described here in Genesis chapter 1. A flat earth supported on pillars with this solid domed heaven in which are embedded the sun, the moon, and the stars. Waters below, waters above. Now they then point out that the Hebrew word for firmament here in verse 6 is, is the Hebrew word rakia. And it's also found in Job chapter 37 and verse 18. Don't need to turn to that, but it says, Hast thou with him spread out the sky, which is strong and as a molten looking glass? And it's the word spread out. That's the Hebrew word rakia. So the sky, according to the book of Job, is described as a molten looking glass. And, of course, looking glasses in biblical times were made from polished metal. They were solid, you see. So, with impeccable reasoning, it's then concluded, well, the firmament must be solid too. And then it's also pointed out, if you just have a look at verse 20 of Genesis chapter 1, that it says here that the birds of the air are said to fly in front of the firmament, not in the firmament. So Genesis chapter 1, verse 20, and this is the King James Version, it says that God said, let the waters bring forth abundantly the moving creature that hath life and fowl that may fly above the earth in the open firmament of heaven. Now, it's actually quite true that... According to Genesis chapter 1, the, the fowls are said to fly in front of the firmament because the word in here, in this verse, really means across the face of or in front of. And so the revised version says, on the face of the, the expanse of heaven. And you see, the advocates of the solid dome theory really emphasize this point that the fowl fly in front of the firmament. And they say that this proves their point, that the birds fly in front of the solid dome, not in the dome. But just park that in your minds for a moment, because it doesn't prove that point at all, as we shall see in a few moments. So this is the case that they make. And, you know, rather than filling our minds with, the, the, frankly, the nonsense of what the ancient Near Eastern civilizations may or may not have believed, what we really need to do is to see what the Bible says. Because, of course, we understand that the Bible is its own interpreter, and the way that we come to an understanding of Bible teaching is, is to compare Scripture teaching with Scripture. So let's, let's do that now. Let's try and turn our attention to what the Bible says and see what the Bible teaches us about the firmament. And it's really, I believe, quite simple and at the same time very satisfying. So let's begin with first principles. And what we know from the scriptures is that it's the consistent teaching of the Bible that God dwells in heaven so for example ecclesiastes chapter 5 says god is in heaven and thou upon earth therefore let thy words be few 
Solomon, in his great dedicatory prayer, said, Hear thou in heaven thy dwelling place. And also the psalmist says that Yahweh's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold, his eyelids try the children of men. So this is simple. God dwells in heaven. Now, the scripture also teaches us that God is from everlasting to everlasting. He is immortal, invisible, the only wise God. And if you think about that, if that's true, then we have to conclude that the heaven in which God dwells must also always have been. So that has implications for how we understand Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1 because it tells us there that in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth and it therefore must follow that the heaven referred to in verse 1 here that had a beginning must be different to the heaven in which God dwells because God is from everlasting to everlasting. And, of course, we know that this is true, don't we? Because, again, it's confirmed by Solomon in his dedicatory prayer in 1 Kings 8. He says that uh, the heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain thee, how much less this house that I have built. Now, just think about that carefully, because what that tells us is that there's not only a heaven that cannot contain God, there's also, according to Solomon, a heaven of heaven that cannot contain God either. And again, we find that this is uh, supported by other scriptures. So Deuteronomy chapter 10 and verse 14 says that, Behold, the heaven and the heaven of heavens is Yahweh's thy God, the earth also, and all that therein is. Nehemiah says, Thou, even thou art Lord alone, thou hast made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their host, the earth and all things that are therein. Now that reference is interesting and helpful because it tells us that the heaven of heavens is where all their host reside. That is, of course, the sun, moon, and stars. So if we put all these scriptures together, then we can summarize it like this. That in addition to the heaven in which God dwells, heaven, God's dwelling place, there is also a heaven that was created in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1, and also a heaven of heavens, which contains the sun, the moon, and the stars. And if we just compare that with what we have in Genesis chapter 1, we can see that this exact same hierarchy of heavens is described for us here. So in verses 6 through to 8 that we've just read, we read about the firmament that is called heaven, it says. It says, God called the firmament heaven. Uh, and it divides the waters below from the waters above. And, and clearly that correlates to the atmosphere, the, the air that we breathe. But then when we come down to verse 14, we read about the firmament of heaven. 
into which God placed the heavenly bodies, the sun, moon, and stars, and we might call that today outer space. Just notice how specific, how precise the record is. It says in verse 14 that God said, let there be lights in the firmament of the heaven to divide the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years, and let them be for lights in the firmament of the heaven to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night. He made the stars also. And God set them in the firmament of the heaven to give light upon the earth. And so it would seem that the heavenly bodies, the sun, moon, and stars, were not in the firmament. They were in the firmament of heaven, what Nehemiah calls the heaven of heavens, with all their host. Now, Genesis chapter 1, verse 20, that we just read earlier, it tells us that God created the fowls of the air to fly in front of or across the face of the firmament of heaven. Now, in the scriptures, the fowls are consistently described as the fowls of heaven. And according to Revelation chapter 19, it tells us there that they fly in the midst of heaven. So the birds fly in the firmament. Of course they do, in the air. But Genesis chapter 1 and verse 20 is telling us that they fly in front of the firmament of the heaven. And if you think about that, that's exactly how it appears to us as observers on the earth. Although they fly in the atmosphere, in the firmament, they appear to be flying in front of the heavenly bodies that are in the, the firmament of heaven. So what about the waters then above the firmament? What do the waters above the firmament represent? And according to theistic evolution... They say that it's this great imaginary watery ocean that's held back by a solid dome. But, brothers and sisters, that's just nonsense. And it's certainly not what the Bible teaches. Just have a look at this reference from Proverbs chapter 8, where it says, When he prepared the heavens, I was there. When he set a compass upon the face of the depth, when he established the clouds above, when he strengthened the fountains of the deep, when he gave to the sea his decree that the waters should not pass his commandment, when he appointed the foundations of the earth, then I was by him as one brought up with him. And I was daily his delight, rejoicing always before him. And we can see straight away that this is based on Genesis chapter 1, isn't it? Clearly. And it tells us there that the heavens separate the clouds above from the fountains of the deep. And so we can conclude that the waters that are above the firmament were the clouds above. And this is confirmed elsewhere in Scripture. So Psalm 78, for example, says, Though he commanded the clouds from above and opened the doors of heaven. And you see, that's an interesting one because... The Hebrew parallelism in that verse compares the clouds from above with the doors from heaven from whence the rain comes. So the doors of heaven has nothing to do with 
holes in the solid firmament, it's the clouds from above. And then Psalm 108 says, For thy mercy is great above the heavens, and thy truth reacheth unto the clouds. And again, the parallelism there indicates that the clouds are above the heavens, just like it says in Genesis chapter 1. So if we were to summarize what we've said so far, we could say this, that first of all, God himself, well, he dwells in heaven, his dwelling place, and has done from eternity. The firmament of the heaven, well, that's the same as the heaven of heavens that we read about elsewhere, and this is where the heavenly bodies reside. The waters that are above the firmament are the clouds. The firmament itself is the sky, the atmosphere, and that's where the birds fly. And the waters below the firmament represent the seas. So it's simple, isn't it? And we can represent it in symbolic terms, in pictorial pictorial form like this. And and it, it makes logical, perfect sense. And it's compatible with what we know about the cosmos today in simple terms and and actually it's also in harmony with what we read in Psalm 148 where it says praise ye Yahweh praise ye Yahweh from the heavens praise him in the heights praise ye him all his angels praise ye him all his host praise ye him sun and moon praise him all ye stars of light praise him ye heavens of heavens and ye waters that be above the heavens. Let them praise the name of Yahweh, for he commanded and they were created. So you see, according to the psalmist there, the waters are said to be above the heavens. But the sun, moon, and stars, well, they're associated in Psalm 148 with the heaven of heavens, just as it says in Genesis chapter 1. So, In summary, there's no, I don't believe, there's any sort of substance at all to this fanciful idea that Genesis 1 is presenting the firmament to us as being solid. The solid dome theory is is one of the foundation arguments for those who try to dismiss a literal understanding of Genesis chapter 1 and 2. And incidentally, that's not just the theistic evolutionists. But just reading carefully, we can see that the scriptures of truth are based, they're not based on ancient Near Eastern myths, pagan beliefs about the world at all. The scriptures, brothers and sisters, are true, and we can rely on them because they are the word of God. So just for the last few minutes now, I want us to turn our attention to the subject of demon possession in the Bible. So perhaps if we can turn to uh, to Mark chapter 5 that we read together by way of introduction. Because again, you see, this is a topic that the theistic evolutionists seize on and they, they place great emphasis upon what the Bible says about demons. And their argument goes something like this. First of all, they say, well, people with mental illnesses are presented in the gospel narratives as being possessed with demons or devils, as it says in the AV. 
And this is what the gospel writers actually believed. Because they were, you see, they were constrained by their own primitive understanding of science. But now, in 2022, well, we know that this is not, in fact, what was happening to these unfortunate individuals. They weren't possessed with demons at all. They, they were mentally ill. And therefore, we can draw the conclusion that the Bible is not actually scientifically accurate. And if that's the case with demons, then why can't it also be true in the case of the creation record? So that's how the argument goes. But actually, brothers and sisters, when we get to grips with what I think is a really fascinating subject, the subject of demons, we can see that far from reflecting the scientific ignorance of the time, the Bible is actually presenting to us a very elaborate parable. And it's a parable that's all about the disobedience of the nation of Israel, God's people, and the way that ultimately they are going to be rehabilitated spiritually when the kingdom of God is established through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what the subject of demons is all about. You see, the theistic evolutionists never stop for a moment to ask the, what I think is the obvious question, why does the Bible, and particularly the gospel records, why do they speak about demon possession? What are the scriptures? What's God trying to teach us? So let's think about that, and again, let's try and establish some first principles. And the first thing to point out is that the Scriptures teach us, both Old Testament and New Testament, that a demon is a false god. Okay, so here's Deuteronomy 32, verse 17, talking about the children of Israel. They sacrificed unto devils, to demons, not to God to gods whom they knew not, to new gods that came newly up, whom your fathers feared not. So a demon is a false god. That's what the Old Testament says. And the New Testament says the same thing. So here's 1 Corinthians 10, where the Apostle Paul says, Wherefore, my dearly beloved, flee from idolatry. But I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice... They sacrifice to devils, to demons, not to God. And I would not that you should have fellowship with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot be partakers of the Lord's table and of the table of demons. And so it's very clear, both Old Testament and New Testament, that a demon is a false god. It's an idol now, we know that false gods do not exist. By definition, they are false. And, of course, God himself tells us that, doesn't he? In Isaiah 44, for example, verse 8, he says, Fear ye not, neither be afraid. Have not I told thee from that time, and have declared it? Ye are even my witnesses. Is there a God beside me? Yea, there is no God. I know not any. So if demons are false gods, and false gods don't exist, 
on God's authority, then we can conclude that demons have no real existence except in the minds of superstitious people. And so this is a fundamental fact, brethren and sisters. And of course, the Lord Jesus Christ, who healed the demoniacs, knew this full well. He knew that demons didn't really exist because he was the Son of God. So the question is then, well, why do the gospel narratives speak to us as though they do exist? What's the point? And, and rather than focusing on the fact that, that the gospels don't fit with modern scientific fact, what we really need to ask is, what are the gospels trying to teach us? And, and I think the answer is, is really quite beautiful when you actually appreciate it. Because when Jesus healed the demoniacs, you see, he was teaching the people, and us too, if we have ears to hear, about how the nation of Israel will ultimately come to salvation and finally be reconciled to God in the kingdom. So let's see if we can see this in this miracle of the Gadarene madman that we have here in Mark chapter 5. Now clearly this man was insane because if you notice in verse 15, it tells us that when he was healed, he, he was said to be in his right mind. So he was obviously not in his right mind beforehand. And, and that state in which this man was living is a fitting representation of the nation of Israel, which, because of their obsession with idolatry in Old Testament times, they were described in the Old Testament as being mad. So, for example, Deuteronomy 28 says, Yahweh shall smite thee with madness and blindness and astonishment of heart. And later on in Deuteronomy 32, verse 16, it says that they provoked him to jealousy with strange gods, with abominations provoked they him to anger. So the demoniac, you see, he represents Israel in a state of madness because they were worshipping demons. <clears throat> now it tells us that this man had his dwellings, his dwelling among the tombs. And we don't have the time to look at this, to turn it up, but that's very reminiscent of Isaiah's prophetic picture of apostate Israel in Isaiah 65. It's described there as a people that provoketh me to anger continually, which remain among the graves, it says, and lodge in the monuments. This is, this is the Gadarene madman in Isaiah 65. And Isaiah goes on to tell us about Israel eating swine's flesh and broth of abominable things is in their vessels. And of course, swine's flesh under the law was forbidden by God. And, and that's echoed here in the gospel miracle by the reference to the, the herd of swine. 
which of course the Jews shouldn't have had. And so this madman here, this Gadarene madman, represents apostate Israel defiled by contact with the false gods of the Gentiles and their abominable practices. And it tells us that he had been often bound with chains, verse 4 says. And of course, so too had the nation of Israel, hadn't it? They were repeatedly enslaved by the Egyptians, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, and then ultimately by the Romans in AD 70. But the time will come, God says, in Jeremiah chapter 30, when God says that I will break his yoke from off thy neck and will burst thy bonds and strangers shall no more serve themselves of him. So Israel is going to be liberated from her bondage. And how will that come about? Well, it will come about when the Lord Jesus Christ appears to Israel and he will provide the nation with the means of forgiveness and cleansing. And God, through Zechariah, says that the time is come when he will cut off the names of the idols out of the land and he will cause the unclean spirit to pass out of the land. And, of course, in the miracle, this is acted out when the demons become identified with the swine, which, of course, as we said, were forbidden by the law and therefore a visible symbol of Israel's sinfulness. And the swine, of course, we know they ran headlong down the cliff and and perished in the sea. And, And thus, in a most remarkable way, was enacted the future time of the cleansing work of Jesus with Israel when... According to the prophet Micah, he says that thou wilt cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. And then this man, sitting, clothed and in his right mind, freed from his chains, rid of his unclean spirit, and delivered from the graves. Well, he reminds us of uh, Isaiah's picture of Israel's future glory in Isaiah 52. Awake, awake, put on thy strength, O Zion. Put on thy beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city. For henceforth there shall no more come into thee the uncircumcised and the unclean. Shake thyself from the dust. Arise and sit down, O Jerusalem. Loose thyself from the bands of thy neck, O captive daughter of Zion. Now, brethren and sisters, I, I think that's beautiful, really when we actually get to grips with what the scriptures are teaching us. So you see, the Lord's use of demon language bears no resemblance whatsoever to this suggestion made by the theistic evolutionists that parts of the Bible don't accord with scientific fact because the men writing it were constrained by their primitive and mistaken knowledge. Rather, we can see that there's purpose, there's reason behind the Lord's teaching and his use of the the symbolic use of demon terminology. Well, just to conclude, can we have a look at Isaiah chapter 66? Isaiah chapter 66. 
And I want us to just read together verses 1 and 2. It says, Thus saith the Lord, The heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. Where is the house that ye build unto me, and where is the place of my rest? For all those things hath mine hand made, and all those things have been, saith the Lord. But to this man will I look, even to him that is poor and of a contrite spirit, and trembleth at my word. Brethren and sisters, this is the spirit with which we must come to God's word, with this spirit of humility, a spirit of teachableness, and we must tremble at its teaching. So we mustn't allow our minds to be befuddled by the ideas of men. Instead, we need to read the scriptures with an open heart, as we do, and comparing scripture with scripture, try to understand its message. Thank you for joining us. We hope you found the episode helpful. Don't forget, most of these episodes are also available as videos on our video channel, cdvideo.org. So head over and take a look. If you have any comments or questions or suggestions, please get in touch or leave us a voice message. We love to hear your feedback. You can email us at bt f at cdvideo.org. If you enjoyed the episode, then please share it with others. Until next time, may God bless you in your studies and your walk towards God's kingdom. Amen.